Welcome to the 23rd episode of the Film Illiterates Podcast, your home for uninformed, unfiltered, ill-advised movie talk. I'm your host, Joe Campbell, and today joining me is Nathan, as always. Hey, what's up? You, you okay there, Nate? Oh, yeah, yeah. Dig, I mean, digging into some Halloween candy, is that right? Pretty much. It's just the stuff I'm going to be, um, you know, sending to you, Joe. So I've just been testing out the Halloween candy. Just make sure it's safe for the kids and all. But... I do not want your razor-infested candy, Nate. Hey, I'm just making sure there's no razors in it or poison or anything like that. So I'm going through half of it right now. So Doing the Lord's work. Exactly. <laughs> And uh, joining us uh, today also is Alex Patton. Welcome back, Alex. Yay, I'm back. Hey, Hello. how are you doing? What's going on? Not much. Not much. <laughs> Watching anime? Yeah. Playing well, games? Yeah. Playing games, yeah. Nothing's changed. Living in the basement. I'm out of the basement. I'm recording my room, so. Oh, there you go. Yeah, you know. <laughs> So uh, today, a special Halloween episode of our podcast. We, uh, guys, we don't have anything special planned. What we're going to do is a special grab bag episode. Now, mm. for many of you, you may, you, some of you listening to this may remember, probably don't. Uh, a while back for the Oscars, we did a special grab bag episode where we just took a whole topic, uh, a whole bunch of random topics, put them in a random generator, and uh, pick some out. Just do a little quick conversations on. So today we're doing exactly that, but with Halloween horror movie topics. Uh, but before we get into that, let's talk about what we've all been watching and doing on our own. Uh, Alex, why don't you kick, kick us off? Since you haven't, of course, yeah, you haven't been yeah. here for two episodes. I know, so why don't you catch <laughs> us up to speed? On you first. Uh, of course. Uh, well, Shadow Keep was finally released, the latest Destiny DLC. So I've been playing nothing but that. I, when it dropped, I took like five days off work just to play it. Just for that. He took his vacation just, time just for play Destiny. Yeah, it's important, man. Of course. Yeah. Good man, good man. Uh, but it's been good so far. There's a lot more stuff to do. It feels... Uh, there's still some work to be done, and especially in the PvP aspect. Uh, but there's a lot of good stuff and a lot of fun stuff to do. The, like the seasonal event, or not event... Um, uh, activity is actually pretty fun and pretty easy. It's easy to grind for gear and stuff like that. Um, Story-wise, is actually really cool. Left a lot of, still a bunch of questions, so hopefully we'll actually get some more some answers. But it seems like they're going back to um, stories that were left kind of open-ended from like even D, like from back in like D one. Um, so it's nice to be get, getting a little bit of closure and a little bit more updates on that kind of thing. Um, so it's been really good. Uh, I was able to beat the new raid within the first week or so. So I was able to get the, um, raid jacket. So I'm ex really excited about that. Cause that's the first time I've been able to do that. Uh, I've tried for it a few times before, but just never, never had the team to do it. Never had the light level high enough to do it. So finally got that done, which was nice. And the raids up. Oh my god, it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> it's taking all of your coin, all of your time just to get that oh, far. The whole like leading up to the final boss isn't bad, but it's just like once you get to the final boss, it's just like here's everything that you learned from like the previous encounters in the raid all at once. And you have to do everything all at once. And yeah, don't die, by the way. <laughs> that that would be a good thing. 
you know yeah it reminds me of ready player one where it's like don't die or you lose everything joe you're gonna have to stop comparing yeah, all of your I mean, experiences with gaming to ready player one that, hey hey it's ready player one or super mario world okay oh so you, you pick your choice I, I, i'd rather you pick super mario world because yeah, that, that's an actual video game yeah exactly um alex i did want to ask uh, uh yeah you kind of mentioned like it's trying to wrap up on on some storylines that the first destiny kind of established uh yeah. with the way it's going do you see like them expanding this universe to try and you know, explore more of the history or even just further storylines that maybe is like in their back burner, but they haven't gotten across to it yet? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things that they're really tr they're really pushing for ever since they became independent was having like a constantly, I can't remember the exact words that the um, lead designer, Luke Smith, put it, uh, but it's like a constantly evolving world. And that doesn't, always, that doesn't um, just mean that the... Um, you know, activities and stuff like that are constantly evolving, but the story as well. So hopefully that's meaning that we get a lot more um, loose ends from previous DLCs, from Destiny 1 being tied up, um, get some closure there. But, you know, it's, it's of course, going to bring in um, new stuff as well. I mean, that's, that's, the DLC has kind of, so far has done a bit of both. Um, still mm -hmm. left a bunch of questions to be answered, but it's at least kind of it's moving it's it's, it's exactly yeah yeah well, hopefully we won't see the you know this is no kind of jabs at uh disney right now or the star wars trilogy but there's not going to be any repeat or re resurrecting of any old characters like this will just be new stuff kind of going forward kind of i mean yeah, yeah, sort of <laughs> they literally sort of did resurrect old characters in a way <laughs> why am i not surprised i'm not surprised <laughs> I mean, they literally, yeah, they resurrected old um, story bosses and raid bosses to be part of, like, um, missions. And the way they do it works within the story, of course, and works within kind of the lore and everything like that. Um, but, yeah, they are technically just re resurrecting. So why can't in the gaming world, like, when a character dies, they stay dead? Why can't that happen? I don't know. It's because people come become attached to those characters. That's what makes it's their death so great. We got that at the beginning of last year with the like big expansion in Forsaken. Like literally, I think it was like almost everyone's favorite character was killed off. I think one of the reasons he was killed off was because the voice actor was unavailable for recording for the new DLC because he was doing a TV show. So maybe that's the reason, but. I mean, yeah, we did lose a very, very major character in the game with no real. But that's kind of like the the rules of life, you know. You lose somebody, they that's you move on. Yeah. All right. Well, enough Destiny. What else have you been doing? Um, watched a bit, a little bit of anime. Um, I don't remember if I talked about it last, but I was watching uh, Fire Force, which was really good. That I enjoyed that one. I'm I'm stoked because they just started the um i think it was the second season or, or whatever it is um but other than that i started watching uh made in abyss which i had heard really good things about i think it won like best anime of the year for the Crunchyroll awards oh wow um, really yeah it's either it's either you know it won or it just you know of course lost to my hero academia like everything everything mm -hmm. else but it's it's really good so far i've i'm close to the end i think about eight episodes in i think there's 12 like I've also heard it's a really heavy 
uh, series to 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 watch, and it hasn't really gotten that bad so far. So I'm interested in seeing what the last four episodes really lay down. But I'm excited. Usually, the last four will get you. So be prepared. Oh, yeah. They got a red well, wedding it in the last last few episodes. Sort of. I mean, like, well, kind of. <laughs> there, to give an example of like kind of the opposite end, it there was um the latest season of Don Machi was like pretty action packed up until like the last few episodes, and then it just kind of like petered out, and it was I, it was really kind of unfortunate because the first season was great, and then the second season was nowhere near as good. Like the last, yeah, last four, last few episodes, are just like, all right, cool, that happened. Now, now what? Now we got to wait for another season. Great, but anyway, that's that's essentially what I've been been uh, watching and playing. Awesome. Uh, I guess I'll go next today. Uh, so most recently, I rewatched Mothra from 1961, directed by Ishiro wow. Honda. Giant ancient moth begins to attack Japan when coming to the rescue of its two uh, two foot tall worshippers who are taken by shipwreck survivors. So I'm a pretty big fan of Godzilla movies, like like the old uh, 1960s, 50s Godzilla movies. I watched a lot of them as a kid. Uh, interesting thing about Mothra, the, the first Mothra movie. So that, so so there is no Godzilla in this in this one, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of parallels to King Kong, the original King Kong, in that. Some people discover an island that they haven't, no one's really been to for a long time. They go there, find some magical creatures and a tribe living there. Mm-hmm. And then they uh, take something from the island uh, that brings a monster to the mainland, which wrecks havoc. So, I mean, the, the way it goes about it is very different, but the general structure is very similar. Another inter- interesting thing about this movie is that Mothra doesn't show up for most of this movie. Like, it's a good half hour, I think, till they actually get to the island. And when Mothra finally hatches out of her egg, it's probably probably more than halfway through the movie, I think. And she starts off in caterpillar form and eventually cocoons herself and becomes, you know, the full-on Mothra form, like, at the end of the movie. But it, it, it works for me. Anyway, I think for a lot of people, this will be a bit of a slow burn, a little bit too much lead-up with very little payoff. Uh, but there's some great, you know, kaiju action at the end. And the threat of Mothra kind of looms over this entire movie. So I, I dig it. I like this movie. So in a way, it's almost kind of like you could see where I guess Peter Jackson was taking notes when he did his version of King Kong of, you know, having the ape show up so late in the movie, probably from this movie. Yeah, it's just kind of – Mothra isn't in much of it, but everyone's always talking about her. And in a lot of these old Godzilla movies, there is – a lot of human drama behind the scenes or should I say not behind the scenes, but I mean, I mean, other outside of the monster action, you know, there's always criminals and the underworld and trying to do all this scheming stuff. So that's all there, but it's all connected to the Mothra plot. And it's got some of that iconic imagery, like Mothra flying over the city and the little twin fairies are in there. They're iconic pieces of Mothra's legacy. So yeah, it's a neat little movie. I, I like it. So uh, next thing I'm going to talk about. So I think on the last, last podcast, I talked about how I rewatched The Omen recently. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I, I wasn't intending on doing an Omen marathon. I was just going to watch the two that I like a lot, which is The Omen and Omen 3. But then I started watching Omen 3, and it opens up with uh, the opening credits play over some cleanup from the previous movie, Omen 2. And I realized I didn't remember anything about omen 2 so, so you had I, to go watch omen 2 now so i went back and popped in the omen 2 and yeah. rewatched that one uh it, was, is your, is your I mean, opinion still the same in a way 
Yeah, it is. I still don't okay. like it. <laughs> have you seen Omen 2, Nate? Uh, I have. I, I mean, honestly, I'm I'm not a pr- big fan of sequels. I'm not a big fan of franchises. I always kind of feel like the first one does it best. So the second one I wasn't too much of a fan of. I just felt like, okay, it's the same gimmicks as the first one, just maybe a bit more of a budget, you know, but it, it, there's nothing that can replace the first Omen for me. Sorry. Yeah, and I think I think with this with the second one, there there are a couple of things that I pinned down as as I think kind of major issues for me at least, and that is in the first one you didn't really get to know Damien. He was just he was almost a MacGuffin. He was always kind of in the background. You never really understood what his mindset is. Is he oblivious to everything that's going on, or is he willfully controlling it? You don't really know, which which makes Gregory Peck's uh, vendetta to try to kill him all the more kind of questionable because. Like, like in the back of your head, it's always like, well, maybe this is just like some kid, you yeah, know? Yeah, maybe he's just like caught in the crossfire of all these uh, other events going all around. Like, you don't know if he's controlling it and if what this other guy's telling him to do is like, you need to put your son to death. It's like, no, you don't know. It's like, yeah. So that's like the where the emotion, that's where the turmoil comes from. But that, that becomes a problem when you carry that into the sequel because because we don't know Damien suddenly he's front and center as a an, an older character you know i think he's in his teens in this one and you're supposed to like like, like he, he he has fully formed thought he's not just like a little toddler running around anymore he's this kid going to school and he's an active character in the story and we don't really know him and as the movie goes on it appears that the movie doesn't really know him either because part of the movie is about him kind of finding out who he is but we don't really care about him before that. So he's, he's he's kind of a blank slate of a character that we just don't care about. And then he just kind of turns full evil, you know. Uh, but another problem this movie has is that so in the first one, it was all about Gregory Peck was investigating, trying to find out what was going on. What is real? Is this all a conspiracy and falling deeper and deeper into this plot? This movie doesn't have a version of that character, really. Because this this movie sets up a series of characters who find out, oh no, he's the Antichrist. We gotta get him, and then they're like instantly killed in some final destination kind of way. Yeah, and that's exactly the same problem I had with this movie when I saw it. Is is that there was no uh, relatable character that you could root for to see them succeed in the end. Like they kept, as you mentioned, they they kept setting that reset button, and therefore the only character that you are latched onto or anchored through is Damien, and but you don't really care. About yeah, you don't him. care about him. They, so, so, so the movie itself is a is it's kind of a slog to get through because there's nothing really, there's no real emotional attachment for us to anchor ourselves onto until like the last half hour of the movie, maybe when the I, th- I think it's the the uncle becomes kind of the main character. Then, yeah, uh, but by then it's too late. It's too late. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I I will give this movie that it has a couple of really cool set pieces. Um, it gets a little bit more exploitative as far as schlockiness uh especially when it comes to the violence there's this one bird attack with the semi truck and all this it's so over the top it's it's kind of kind of funny and uh there there's one scene it's a confrontation between damien and his cousin in in uh some woods which i will say if there's anything near iconic in that movie it's that scene it's a very well done scene yeah okay like and that was the one thing i was thinking like uh it would have been nice if the movie was a little bit more building up that kind of relationship, but it it 
it wasn't enough. Yeah, yeah. Cut out all the other stuff. Make it about Damien and his cousin and his cousin, and 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 make Damien know who he is from the beginning of the movie. Just 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 have him be fully formed evil from the beginning. That that, that I think that would streamline the movie, uh, quite quite a bit. So yeah, no, that's a not not a recommendation on uh, Damien Omen two. I uh, do watch Omen 3, which I'll be rewatching hopefully in the next week, too, because I do quite enjoy that one, despite what anyone may say. <laughs> uh, last one I'm going to talk uh, touch on briefly is, uh, Nate, you've seen Juno, haven't you? Yes, I have. Do you remember uh, the movie Ellen Page watches, the horror movie she watches in that movie, in Juno? Oh, yes. And she says uh, it's better than Suspiria. Uh, it, was the, it was the House of Gore? The, the Wizard of the Gore. Wizard of Gore. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So you were able to find this movie and watch it. I watched it on uh, Criterion Streaming Service. They have a whole bunch of Herschel Gordon Lewis movies on there right now. Oh, gosh. Uh, okay. Well, how, does, how, did, how did you fan it? So The Wizard of Gore, 1970, directed by Herschel Gordon Lewis. A TV talk show hostess and her boyfriend investigates a shady magician who has the ability to hypnotize and control the thoughts of people in order to stage gory onstage illusions using his powers of mind bending. This movie's trash. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from what I can remember seeing in Juno, it looked yeah. like trash. It's like one of those like really low-budget snuff films that it's like there's nothing redeemable there's no real value in it it's just anyone who's like a gore fan is gonna... it is so just so incompetent on every single level it's, it's cut together very awkwardly there are mm -hmm. shots where there's no continuity between where characters are standing none of the angles are interesting at all and they mm -hmm. cut between each other very confusingly i had to read about the movie afterwards to realize that uh, during some of the onstage butcherings, there are some shots of you know him hacking people to bits, and there's gore everywhere. And then it cuts to another shot, and there's like no blood on him at all. And I thought it was just a continuity mistake, but apparently it's supposed to be part of the movie in uh, like a thematic thing about oh he's doing an illusion, people don't realize what's going on. That didn't come across to me at all. I thought it was just continuity error on set. Yeah, exactly. See, that, I kind of looked into that as well, and I was like. Is this like a, a a continuity issue? Like, was this guy like his first time? No, it's you're right. It was because of that reason, but there's no establishment of that. It is such a pretentious movie, and I don't think it's necessarily meaningfully pretentious. I think it's just padding out dialogue with a bunch of mumbo jumbo of you know oh what are we who are we look i am you you are him, I, whatever all, all this stuff that doesn't make any sense i think he's just padding out the runtime with this dialogue I, I i will say the main guy ray sager i think his name is who plays montag the magnificent he's kind of fun to watch he's so hammy but it works for this kind of movie. I mean, I mean, I mean, the gore is interesting to look at, but it's it's not effective. Uh, I w I will say I wasn't bored watching it. I was entertained watching it. Like 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 like, like there would be shots of you know uh, he'd be like impaling some woman's head, and then it cuts to a like the obvious the most obvious dummy of all time, and it's like I don't know, just nothing about this movie was effective in any way. But it's mildly entertaining. So I I'm a, I'm I'm gonna not recommend The Wizard of Gore, but. If it sounds like something, you'd be like, "Hey, it's almost—it's almost like MST3K level stuff." So, if that sounds like the sort of thing that you want to check out on like a late night, you could do worse for entertainment value. Right. Exactly. So that is all I got. Uh, Nate, what you got? Uh, so since we last did our podcast, Joe, um, I haven't had a chance to really sit down and watch anything, but 
in preparation for this, I've been trying to really kind of brush up on the history of just horror in general. So one of the things I was watching in the spare time that I've had was called this, uh, it was, it's basically a BBC documentary called uh, History of Horror with uh, Mark Gaddis. Um, and really all it is is this guy who's going to all these Hollywood set pieces from famous movies on the Universal lot to Paramount to talking with like filmmakers like George Romero, um, John Carpenter, and a lot of just these famous pioneers in the horror genre in the past 70s and 80s. And just talking about like these hallmark, you know, movies that have defined the horror genre time and time again. And it was an, it was an interesting watch. I kind of was able to, you know, brush up on, you know, certain production companies and production houses like Hammer was a big one back in the 70s and 60s who were trying to, you know, revive the whole horror genre, especially they were kind of like doing great stuff with color that was just drawing audiences back in, but also being very careful with it because uh, Universal would do, they would just slap a, a lawsuit on you if they saw any resemblance of, you know, their original Frankenstein monster. So, so Hammer's production house would have to redefine or like redesign all these famous horror monsters. And that was kind of just interesting to watch and just how, you know, even in the seventies, they started to get very experimental with it. So uh, it was a very entertaining watch. I mean, obviously the guy's kind of, you know, hamming it up for just his audience. He knows these are the horror fans, the horror, you know, lovers. So he kind of was pandering to them a lot, like more of just like, oh, I went to this set piece and I saw this. So it, it, it had its campy moments, but overall a pretty good watch. I enjoyed it. Awesome. I've, I've, been, I've been wanting to get into more of these uh, documentary series about horror films. There's a... Uh... A series by uh, it's, it's an Unshuttered streaming service from uh, Mickey Keating. He's the director of a uh, few movies. I'm, I'm not crazy about his movies, but he's done movies like Pod and Darling. But he he hosts the series, but it's a very interesting series where he does. It's very kind of tongue in cheek, a lot of effects in it. But he shows, you know, oh, we'll, we'll do an interview with a horror filmmaker here, and then we'll do an effects thing here and show you how they do this kind of effect. And then we'll talk about some horror movies here. So, so I've been wanting to do watch more stuff like that. Cause it's always fascinating to me. Uh, let's see other stuff I've been listening to. I was today catching uh, brushing up on the pure cinema podcast hosted by the new Beverly cinema. Um, the guys who host this, they obviously, you know, have these little like screening festivals that they'll do sometimes at the new Beverly. And they brought on um, this guest, uh, Patrick uh, Bromley from uh, F this movie. Uh, and they were talking about this interesting thing that they're doing uh, this week called um, they're called horrors all nighters, and what they are is like they'll basically get a lineup of movies, and for the next twenty four to forty eight hours, they'll show nothing but these movies. So they'll like, if I had an audience in this theater, this is the lineup of the movies with the trailers. I would put them through, and it was kind of interesting how they structured their lineup because they were like okay well at three o'clock you're going to be drowsy you're going to be tired so put on a little bit of italian horror to kind of like make you feel like you're in a dreamlike state and then as you get more sleepy just put something a little bit more fun like monster squad just to liven it up again so they were kind of like doing their own like little you know horror all-nighter lineups and it was kind of just interesting some of the choices they were making so i don't know and i've never heard of this thing like horror all-nighters but you know, going 24 hours of just watching nothing but horror movies kind of does sound interesting. I heard about that, and I I wish that I had made more trips to the New Beverly when I lived in San Diego because I went there once for a double feature of Andromeda Strain and uh, Colossus the Forbidden Project, 
and I was just I, I was just I was thinking thinking why why haven't I been here more often? You know, it's it's a fantastic place. Yeah, and honestly, some of the movies that they were uh, spitting out, I was like, I'd never heard these, but just from the way they were talking, they it's like they kind of grew up with this. They like old VHS copies and even just like '80s movies that no one's ever heard of, but they said like, oh, but we're so into Canadian horror, and I was like. There's so many genres out there. I keep forgetting. Like nowadays, it's hard to keep up. But yeah, I was listening to that. And then just to finish all up, I decided to try to watch a vampire movie. And what better one to catch up on but Nosferatu, made back in 1922. So it's basically a loose adaptation off of the Dracula story by Bram Stoker, where you know we have this Count Orlok, played by Max uh, Sherlock, who is probably one of the most terrifying vampires to ever come on screen. The he, the way he looks, his costume, his makeup is just just terrifying in itself. It's kind of like up there with uh, Lon Chaney's Phantom of the Opera. But watching it again, I forgot how hokey it was. Like everyone's acting is so over the top. It's so German expressionistic. And here's a funny thing. The Stroker family sued this movie because they never got permission to use the Dracula storyline. That's why it's kind of like a loose adaptation that they ordered all the prints to get burned. So there's a very few surviving prints nowadays, and that's why like it's hard to find them. Yeah, I haven't seen Nosferatu uh, probably since college. I, I remember liking it, but mm-hmm. it is. I mean, I mean, it is over the top because it's like one of those one of those silent films, and it's from from a from a different era of, of acting. Oh yeah, yeah. But but... I, I I've been I've been I've been really meaning to rewatch this one because it's it is it is a classic that everyone talks about, but I don't feel like anybody. I don't feel like we we really watch it enough. Yeah, no, I mean, like as far as like German expressionism, um, it's it's nowhere up near like the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but. I don't know, like uh, Max uh, Sharik's uh, performance as the Count on screen is still iconic in itself. And that's probably just one of the reasons just to watch it. Like there's some shots in there where the guy peeks out of the door and it just cuts to this long hallway shot. And he's like just standing there at the end, just staring at you. And I don't know, like to watch this, like with all the lights down in your house, with that on screen and the music playing, it's it's it can send shivers up your spine still. I'll show it to my kids, give them some more nightmare fuel. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Be a great dad like that. Uh, but yeah, that's that's all I watched. Awesome. Well, with that, let's move on to our main topic: Halloween grab bag. All right, so here's how this is going to work. I've got a list of Halloween-inspired movie topics here. Yeah. Nate's got his candy. Oh, no, that's... Well, it's supposed to be your bag, but yeah, it's my candy bag. <laughs> it helps maintain the illusion. Yeah, there we go. Um, and uh, we're just going to pick some of these at random in my uh, random topic generator and see what we got. So I know last time we had a timer going for this. Should we, should we set a timer for each one or just kind of go until we, till we feel like we've, we've spent each topic? Let's do a timer. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll go ahead and time us then. All right. Sounds good. I'll, 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 I'll have you uh, be, be in charge of that then, Nate. All right. So here we go. Our first topic is... In the past 10 years, what movies would be considered good Halloween movies? Trick or Treat. Wait, well, wait, when did that come out? I don't know. <laughs> I was about to say that. I'm, not, I'm like, I don't know when Trick or Treat came out. <laughs> uh, 2007, Just Missed the Boat. Oh, well, too bad. Man, did it really come out in 2007? I know. It was like, time flies. That's crazy. 
uh, my, my, my go-to horror movie of, of, of recent history, I know this might be a controversial choice to some people, is The Conjuring. I actually don't think it's a controversial choice. I think uh, it's uh, it's kind of one of the best well done thriller movies I've seen in a long time. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I know, I know that's pretty highly acclaimed, but I know that also, also today it's kind of gone under a reevaluation where a lot of people, I feel like there's kind of a backlash to it because of the sequels and the spinoffs, and a lot of people just kind of think of it like, oh, it's that movie. That movie wasn't all that good to begin with, anyway. And I think it's kind of tainted the movie in some people's minds uh mm-hmm. almost like almost like almost like how the star wars prequels go through ebbs and flows of sometimes it's cool to hate it and sometimes people like it again mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah no yeah uh, I, but i i've always loved the conjuring i think it's one of the one of, it's 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 easily one of my go-to modern day haunted house movies or exorcism movies oh that's a that's a good call i mean i remember actually seeing it in theaters and just being uh quite um on the edge of my seat, like it, it definitely because it's like produced by the same guys who did Insidious. A lot of those jump scares are there, and I, I don't know. I thought they were done much better in this movie. I'd say I'd, I and then for another movie, I would add uh, Sinister. Oh, Sinister! Absolutely, I think that's a great one too. Yep. That was um, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the director who did it, but yeah, Scott the, Derrickson. Scott Derrickson. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that one too because it wasn't. It wasn't too much of like um like jump scares and stuff like that. It was just like it was just very very eerie and very creepy. Like almost every shot was just like the you know the main character or whatever was just like off center off to the side and just like looking. It was just like be like looking down a just a dark hallway. It's just so freaking creepy, man. But it was good. And then when it finally like worked its way up to like the actual scary parts, it was. It was still great. Yeah, no, it it is good. I'll have to admit. Um, I think one of the films in my my book, I would say, is Hereditary. Um, Joe, I know you still haven't gone around to seeing this, which I feel like is almost a huge sin on your part because I, I know, I know, I know. I really, I do need to see this one. Only because, like, the way it taps into the family drama aspect of it is something I think that makes it a lot more unsettling because I think that's why I bought in the whole jump scares and the horror setups and just even the whole reveal at the end. I thought it was much more effective when I realized the dynamic of this family. Um, and it's just like, it's very unsettling. And even just what you find out about the mother and what her intentions are and what's going on and realizing that this is kind of like on a, uh, a rolling hill and there's no way of stopping it. I bought into it a lot more and a lot of like the stuff that happens in it, they are kind of ridiculous. But I think at that point you're just so kind of confused by what's going on. And so dear to some of these characters, you're like, ah, geez, I have no idea what's going on. And I'm in the same boat as you. So Uh, uh, two more. I just want to throw out there Uh, as far as just go to movies that are just a fun time around Halloween. uh, I would say cabin in the woods is probably near the top of my list. Oh yeah. I'd say so. Uh, and then just at the tail end of it, 2009, so still technically the last 10 years, uh, Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm surprised you didn't list that one first off. Well, I, I, yeah, especially considering I just I just rewatched that one recently. But uh, uh, out, of the, out of the few that I've mentioned here, I'd probably say as far as just straight up horror classics that are good for a Halloween time, I'd say The Conjuring and Cabin in the Woods are the first two that come to mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. Well, that's uh, five minutes. All righty, that's uh, that's it. See you guys next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We're done.
<laughs> All right, let's move on. Next topic. Next topic is favorite candy to get when trick or treating. Oh, anything with peanut butter. Reese's. I, I agree. Chocolate I like. Uh, uh, what do you? What do you call? Was uh, it sweet tarts? Uh, like 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 the little ones rolled up. I, I I I've never been as big on the chocolate candies. I like the candies. I think nobody else likes. It's just kind of like the 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 harder stuff and the kind of the 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 sweet and the kind of the kind of the tart stuff. It's like everything else that doesn't kind of fall into either of those categories. Like I like candy corn, <laughs> sweet tarts. Mm-hmm. I like all the weird stuff. Mm-hmm. Honestly, some of the, some of the stuff I really like is like um. I know they're not really popular anymore, but while growing up, Wonka candy was actually always really good. So anything that was like, you know, sh- sugary and sour. Oh, the ner- uh, nerds are great. Nerds are really nerds. good. Yeah. Uh, I, I I always like the anything sour. I love sour candy. So like any getting like warheads or something like that. Oh, that was oof. Well, that's a lot much even for even for me. I think. <laughs> <laughs> actually, you know what? Butterfingers are my go-to candy. Actually, even 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 today, that's the those are probably probably my favorites. Yeah, and that's a that's a kind of a peanut butter chocolate candy in a way. Yeah, yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see what there's some other ones out there, but I think like uh, okay, I guess not a favorite candy, but a candy I always got really tired of Tootsie Rolls. I don't know yeah. why. Uh, Tootsie Rolls kind of got on like on my nerves after a while. And like when it's like the one candy that every single parent has at every single door, you're like, there was no variety. It's because they sell them in like huge bags at like the grocery store. And like they're like one of the cheapest ones to buy. So like everyone will get them and you just end up with a ton of Tootsie Rolls. But yeah, I've been, I'm the same I'm in the same boat. It's just like I, they're fine. You know, it's candy. It's still sweet and chocolatey, but it's not like it's nowhere near as good as a lot of the other stuff out there. Let me ask you guys something. Did you ever get like at one time, like when you went to someone's house and they gave you like a European candy? Like it was just like, you know, you could tell it's not from your your local grocery store, but it was still like some of the best candy you ever had. I rarely got anything like that, honestly, although I've, I've, I've known people who did. Yeah. For some reason, one year, and I, I, I don't know why, but I got a Stroopwafel once like a mini stroop waffle and it was like a little kind of like just a little packet of like five and i thought they were so good i don't even know what that is stroop waffles you don't know what stroop waffles are i oh, think man. i've had them probably but like i don't remember it's like those like glazed like a uh, waffle cone um honey flavored sandwich things you see like at starbucks they sell them a lot um, maybe i don't know it's not ringing a bell for me but do you- did you guys ever get anything like, did you ever come across one of those houses that was trying to be like healthy and like give oh. like, an apple or some like. Little apple snacks. Yep. Celery sticks. There was one. Oh, house. Celery sticks? Yes. <laughs> what it was. It was the weirdest thing. Like someone had basically frozen peanut butter and celery sticks with like this sweet like uh, stevia glaze or something like that. Oh. And it was frozen and they gave it to me. I'm like. What is this? I mean, I mean, peanut butter and celery sticks, like, it's not a bad snack during the day. It's a horrible trick-or-treating idea. It, it is. Because <laughs> there was no way to put it in the bag. Because this person just, like, handed it to us, like, on a platter. And they said, take one. I'm like... It's not even like a little wrapper. <laughs> and you have no choice but to eat it, basically, at that point. Throw it in the bag, man. <laughs> You're just taking it with you off the porch and throwing it in the gutter. <laughs> I think I saw a lot of kids doing that. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> All right, alrighty. Uh, next topic. Let me pull it up. 
laughably bad horror movies. We're talking about uh, what was it? Wizard of Gore, I think. Oh yeah, Wizard Wizard of Gore is up there, definitely, <laughs> <laughs> or down there, I should say. Yeah. Um, honestly, I think uh, just the later Nightmare on Elm Streets, like after the third one, when they got into the fourth one, there's just a lot of stuff where like Freddy Krueger uh, is just doing some outrageous stuff, and you can't take it seriously at that point. Oh yeah, I bet I bet like a lot of those like yeah just like the fifth and sixth sequels and then the crossovers where it's you know freddy versus jason yeah i bet there's a lot of dumb shit in that <laughs> yeah it's close, close enough your mileage may vary I, i'm just I'm, I'm on letterboxd right now and i'm looking over a list of horror movies uh that i've seen from my lowest rankings <laughs> i'm looking through this i'm like this is stuff i would never want to watch again it's not fun you know uh, Area 407, uh, got some of the Hellraiser sequels, uh, the I, I Spell on Your Grave sequels, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But then as, as you move up a little bit, I, I start ranking some of these movies a little bit higher that are still terrible movies, but they're kind of entertaining. Like like I got House 4, The Repossession on here. Oh my gosh, I forgot <laughs> that House made a, a fourth sequel. <laughs> they made four of those movies, and it has the infamous Pizza Man sequence, which if, if, if no one's seen this, go into YouTube and Google uh, House 4 Pizza Man scene. <laughs> it's damn near iconic. Or the uh, the crime lord that forces people to chug like vials of his phlegm <laughs> when they, they mess up. Oh, God. Jeez, where did they... I don't know where the writers were going with that, but okay. Oh man, so 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 you got stuff like that, or you got stuff like uh, Psycho Three. We talked about on the on the YouTube channel. That's got some pretty fun uh, moments in there. I think some of the Saw movies kind of fall into that too. Like it seems like they're trying to be serious, so but they're just it's dumb. The the Saw sequels just end up droning on. It becomes repetitive. And as the series gets more convoluted with its kind of head up its own ass and its mythology, Mm -hmm. it gets to be less fun to watch, especially in some of the later sequels. Like, like, like there's like a span of like, I think like four or five, six or three, four or five, something like that. It Mm -hmm. just, it stops becoming fun to watch. And just, oh, here's a bunch of gore shots. And here's a whole bunch of history and backstory. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess before it stopped, it stopped being kind of entertaining, at least. Yeah, yeah I, th- I would have to say, Joe, also um, kind of like in the same ballpark, some of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequels that came after, you know, once I think Michael Bay's production company took over. Like, I guess I was over at your place and you're watching, I think it was number eight, number seven. Oh, right. Yeah, that know. was, uh, I think that was Texas Chainsaw 3D. Okay, so that one, I remember yeah. just started watching it when I was over at your place. And yeah, I was just kind of just laughing at how stupid these kids were like <laughs> oh it has one of the best song inserts <laughs> in the road right. trip but it was the best like um country bluegrass like gospel song you could ever imagine coming out of a horror movie and it was so perfectly placed as far as texas chainsaw massacre movies go i might put this in the same category but uh, texas chainsaw massacre the next generation or the new generation that one might fit on 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 a lot of people's definitions of this because i kind of enjoyed that movie but it's the one with matthew mcconaughey and renee zellweger in it oh with him cutting like the knife into his skin matthew mcconaughey is terrifyingly hilariously intense in this in that movie Mm -hmm. and it's 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 fun to watch but you're also worried like like at one point he's holding renee zellweger up against the wall uh with like i think i think he has like a like like a knife to her throat and you're watching this and i'm getting the impression that she's 
actually like pissed off at him like like okay you're you're hurting me now stop it but she like but she but she she's, she just stops shy of saying it <laughs> i think what just makes that movie funny is that that's matthew mcconaughey and <laughs> checks his chainsaw massacre he is so <laughs> over the top in that movie and it's uh, kind of great let's get another one in here how about what is the ultimate halloween movie that isn't john carpenter's halloween any of the like the old like like friday the 13th like the thing i really don't i really don't like friday the 13th honestly if we're being being honest here i don't know like this is kind of an interesting one because joe uh i guess for that do you mean like if it's a horror movie that's set or based around the actual date of halloween or if it's just like a good halloween movie to be shown on halloween or I, I think it mean, I think it can, it can it can mean what what you want what you want it to mean in this situation. What I take this to mean is what is the ultimate movie to watch around Halloween time? What movie would you recommend to people? Um, for me, I would always say Monster Squad. Like I think that's just a, a given a go to one. Like it's it's family friendly enough. It has all the horror monsters in it in one box, and it's Fred Decker, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm just thinking of some of my some of my go to movies to watch around Halloween. Uh, as I'm going through them, some of them right now, the uh, Robert Wise's The Haunting is always on my list. Oh, that is a good one. Yeah, uh, one that I watch, and again, we've talked about this on the uh, YouTube channel. We've had a review of it, uh, but I, I'm sure it wouldn't be on very many people's lists. Is House Two: The Second Story, <laughs> which is just kind of a blast to watch around Halloween. It's 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 like you can throw it on in the background of parties. You can sit down and watch it and have fun with it. It's kind of the ultimate Halloween movie. It's set around Halloween. There's people in costumes. There's goofiness. Um, another one I would put up there would be, <laughs> as far as Halloween movies, uh, is Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, which I just watched. I know, I know, I know. But I watched uh-huh. this for the first time last year, and I love that movie so much. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like a – it kind of, kind of has a Ray Bradbury meets technology kind of feel. I love the mixture of – kind of old time mythology horror you know with you know ancient gods and demons and all that mixed with technology and terror around technology it's like Grimm's fairy tales mixed with chopping mall kind of which all blends together in this very kind of ray bradbury-esque tale which for me works very well i i i enjoy the hell out of that movie so i would i would recommend that one as a good watch around halloween trick-or-treat as well i think would be that's a very that's a very uh, fitting movie to watch around Halloween. Trick or treat, yes. I need to, I need to, I need to rewatch that one, but I remember that one was yeah. is, is is another one of those. Yeah, I guess for me, when it comes to Halloween, I'm I'm always one of those guys that like falls into that ballpark of watching very very disturbing um, Halloween movies, like you know, The Exorcist or even Hereditary. Like I, I kind of go for that, so it's really hard for me to get any of my friends to watch them. But um, I don't know. I guess I could say also maybe. Uh, I think more recently, like Netflix has produced a lot of great just Hollywood uh, fanfare. Like you know, the House on Haunting Hills was really good. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. We're talking TV shows. Yeah, sure. Um, um, Evil Dead Two is always good for a watch around Halloween. Also, oh, just for the, sure. The, the haunted cabin, over the top yeah. goofiness, the mm-hmm. the gore. Yeah, that one. Oh, and uh, I this one might come up if this topic comes up later. Uh, but another movie that I would recommend is Something Wicked This Way Comes. That is sadly a very underrated good film in general. I think I remember watching it when I was a kid, and I 
enjoyed the hell out of it. I actually watched it for the first time last year. It's difficult to find. As of right now, I don't think you can find it online anywhere. You have to find a physical copy of it. Yeah, I remember actually watching it on an old VHS that Disney was like producing as part of like their collection series. And it was at that right age. I was like still young, but not not too young that I couldn't handle it. So it was good. Yeah, but talk about just great spooky imagery kind of this mm-hmm. for, for halloween i love i love movies that kind of are have, have a threat to children because i think that that kids especially really latch onto that and makes it a little bit more frightening uh which is i mean again one reason i love halloween 3 so much because it's like the ultimate <laughs> overboard threat against children but in something wicked this way comes is from a child's perspective right and it's about these kids seeing this kind of supernatural horror around them and trying to get the adults in on it to find out what's going on but the adults get sucked into it too and it's you know the spooky carnival it's got some really terrifying imagery for a disney movie in there too you know i agree and it almost in a way kind of like set the stage for just 80s like you know kid adventure horror films in general like I don't know. I could see like the Goonies taking a lot from this and even just, you know, you look at Stranger Things and it's kind of almost following a bit of the same formula in some areas. No, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. What's the next one? All right. So should found footage stop being used so much as a gimmick for horror slash thriller movies? I think so. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I I wrote I wrote an article on this recently for my uh, uh, my old university's blog, <laughs> but the premise of the article was what has happened to found footage and why don't we see it as much anymore? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we because it was huge for a while. Yeah. Like, every- Everything was found footage. It was like a few years after uh, Blair Witch or so. Yeah, no, I remember like just a lot of like horror films like that kind of followed it afterwards, like Wreck, uh, VHS, um, As Above, So Below. Um, a lot of these films that kind of followed the very same formula. Um, and after a while, like there's only so much you can do with that kind of gimmick or that genre that it just gets yeah. really old. Yeah, it, it, that's 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 one of the biggest problems with it. It just gets it gets old so fast now, and it's hard to do something really kind of innovative with it because a lot of the stuff has kind of already been done by the early movies that really kind of worked with it and so anything after is kind of just rehashing a lot of the similar styles i think the one movie that came really close to actually doing something new and different was Mm -hmm. uh um as above so below now i'm not saying it's a good found footage movie it's one i personally like because i could see them actually dabbling into different genres to try and make the found footage work like you know they're employing um, archaeology, kind of this Indiana Jones, Nathan Drake kind of element to it, which I thought was kind of cool, but it still fell into the same pitfalls, the same kind of gimmicks as found footage always gets into. Yeah. Uh, a friend of all of ours, Mike, yep. that I used to room with, there was a time probably, probably for like, like a couple of years where he and I would do nothing but watch like the most bottom of the barrel, terrible found footage movies we could find out there. Oh, Stuff that, like that... Area 407 and Unaware. That continued after you moved out and when I moved in with him. That makes me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> Kept up the legacy. But as you guys said about about, about found footage, though, it's, it's the, the problem with the genre and the reason it kind of petered out in the end was because there's only so much you can do with it. It has the same tricks over and over again. And so many of them end with the same thing of, oh, the person gets killed, the camera falls over. And they tread so much water where it's just, you know, you know, set up, oh, we have to have this contrived setup for why this person is going to be filming everything that they're seeing. Yeah. And then they're kind of walking around filming the most boring shit throughout the whole movie. I, yeah, and I think they missed the whole point with what the Blair Witch was trying to do with that kind of a, a technique was to give the solution like this is real. Like that was a whole part of why Blair Witch, I think, works so well and why it's still kind of 
lives in everyone's minds is because you actually think these were kids that went into the woods, they got lost, and no one found them again. But once that's gone, once the illusion is revealed, like, oh, yeah, this is all staged, the found footage gimmick doesn't, it's not effective. But it can uh, work. It can. Yeah, I think can. you just need to find new ways of doing it. And I think it just might be just put it in different genres. I would like yeah. to see it work in different genres that isn't horror or thriller or suspense-based. It would be interesting to see it adapted that to other genres. I don't know if it necessarily work as well, but still, yeah, I mean, maybe worth a try. I've always thought it would be interesting to try to do something like a romance, a found footage romance, and how would you do that? <laughs> that would be interesting for sure. But as, as, as far as what's happened to, to found footage, I think it's, I don't think it's disappeared so much as it's just evolved. I think what we're seeing today is more experimental kind of movies that, that try to do something like that. So, for instance, these have you guys heard of Screen Life movies? No. Right. So, so it's, it's stuff like uh, uh, what was that movie with the people getting getting killed by the ghosts in the computer screen? Oh, you're talking about yeah. Unfriend. Unfriended. Unfriended. That's the one I'm oh, thinking about. Know. So yeah. movies like that, you know, you had Unfriended came out. They made a sequel to that one. Uh, there was Searching came out, I think, last year with uh, John Cho. Which is more of like a detective uh, crime drama. Right, exactly. But it's the same sort of thing where it's, you know, the whole movie is on this computer screen. And I think we're going to be seeing more stuff like that. I think that's going to be the new found footage in a way. I don't think it's going to be as uh, widespread as the found footage one was. I don't think we're going to be seeing as many of those. But I think I, I think that, that that's kind of where the genre has gone. It's gone to, to more of this kind of other experimental stuff. Uh, should we do one more topic? Yeah, sure. let's do it. Alrighty. So last one: most lovable villain slash monster, oh. Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just want to give a big old hug. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, him and uh, you know Clarice. That's that will be one of the greatest uh, romances on screen. <laughs> I ship it. Kind of so kind of going back to Monster Squad, I would have to say um Frankenstein's monster in that is very lovable. Um I think Chris Noonan, the actor who plays him, just brings a certain kind of just innocence to the character that obviously was there with the original Boris Karloff monster design. But I think he just takes it to the next level when he's bonding with the little sister. And I don't know. I think that's the one thing that I like about the movie. My the, the <laughs> you know which one comes to mind first for me is a movie I've actually rewatched recently, which was Return of Swamp Thing. Have you have you guys have either of you seen Return of Swamp Thing? No. Uh no, but I tried to watch the recent uh DC Swamp Thing. Um yeah, you know. So Return of Swamp Thing was uh in nineteen eighties, it was a sequel to uh, Wes Craven's Swamp Thing movie. And Return of Swamp Thing goes full on horror comedy, like goofy over the top stuff. But Swamp Thing himself is just so lovable in it. Basically, throughout throughout the movie, someone will get accosted by some monster or some villain, some scientific experimental stuff. And then he'll just burst in and his theme song is this triumphant, you know, do 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 kind of a thing. <laughs> and he'll like just like burst through the wall to save the day and gives you a thumbs up and he'll take a picture with you because damn it, he's just he, he's the guy. Yeah, he's everybody's <laughs> hero. He's everyone's friend. Like, 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 that's like a whole scene where it's literally, literally just like a couple of kids who are like, "Hey, can we get a picture with you?" He's like, "Yeah, sure, why not, kids?" <laughs> it's great. Uh, most lovable monster easily Swamp Thing from the Return of Swamp Thing. <laughs> <laughs> does Does Belial from Basket Case count? Um, I have not seen it, so I can't really say. He's a vile 
horrible mound of flesh in the first movie but in the sequels they kind of try to make you, you 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 get his pain you get where he's coming from he just wants to live his life that's an instance of a character where they they, they kind of turned him that way over the course of, of the movie series but uh anthony perkins and psycho at least for like the first half maybe likable yes lovable uh okay yeah maybe, maybe it's pushing <laughs> too far but well maybe in you know the tv show bates motel with uh freddie highmore you know yeah uh, norm bates is another interesting one because he's even when you first meet him in the in psycho something's off about him even in his offness he, there's something still enduring endearing about him like like he he was designed it's almost like he was scientifically designed to be likable and that's what makes him off-putting that is true oh kind of if we're, we're still on this page um i would have to say michael parks from tusk <laughs> now, how can you not love a, a wonderful little old canadian man like that who just wants to turn you into a walrus you know? <laughs> how could you not yeah <laughs> i think i think it's funny how you go to michael parks and not justin i i, I thought you were gonna go with justin long with that and the fact that he just turned into a walrus <laughs> well i guess you could go with both you could go with both i think you know michael parks just sells a lot more for me because he's doing horrible <laughs> stuff but he's laughing and smiling and singing lewis's carol's walrus and the carpenter and you're like i can't take you seriously even though what you're doing is horrific his performance in that movie is underrated whether or not you like tusk michael parks is great in that movie yeah. it's a great it's a great little movie i i, I still dig tusk <laughs> uh anyway do we have any other else or any any other else any other uh ideas for this i feel i i feel like for this one specifically lovable movie monsters i feel like we're missing a lot of really obvious answers that we're gonna get yelled at for missing yeah uh geez you're right. There, there's probably a lot that we are missing. So maybe we should just ask our uh, fans if they, if they know any. Uh, please comment below. Yeah, comment, or... comment some of your favorite lovable movie monsters and tell us which ones we've we've missed. Because I know that there's just a butt ton out there that we're that, that we're just not remembering at the moment. I think it's because we watched the wrong kinds of <laughs> movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were six when we were starting to watch Halloween and the thing. Well, and you and I are watching all this, you know, Omen two. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, You know, here's one thing, if you don't mind us just throwing this into the pool right now. uh, What were movies, I guess you could say, that kind of terrified you as when you were growing up? Like, they don't necessarily have to be a horror movie, but were there any, like, scenes from movies or just, you know, movies in general that freaked you out? I got two. Okay. First one one was Gremlins. My, My parents got me and my little sister that for Christmas back when I was like, I don't remember how old I was. I don't think I was even like, I might've been 10 or something like that, but they got it for us. And they're like, Hey, yeah, you should watch it. It's a, it's a, it's a comedy movie. It's not a comedy movie to a kid. No, <laughs> that's just scary, man. Yeah. Having these little, <laughs> Gosh, having, having these little gizmo Furbies just like suddenly become these weird, slimy, terrifying gremlins that just with the vicious teeth. Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. That scared the hell out of me. My mom felt so bad that she made she had us watch it. <laughs> um, one of my earliest memories, and uh, this is kind of a, a fun story. It's it's not a horror movie, but it was ET. Um, and how this kind of came about was, I think I was about three when I first saw it, and my cousin was four, or something like that. And I think it's that first introduction to ET when he's running and screaming through the woods. 
I don't know how this happened, but her freaking out made us and my brother freak out. And for the longest time, we kind of like had a stigma of like never touch that movie, never see that movie for the longest time. Um, I got over it eventually. But yeah, I just remember that being one that freaked the heck out of me. The, the, yeah. the stuff that I remember frightening me as a kid, like 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 stuff that really like stuck with me and really frightened me. It, it's not necessarily movies so much, but just random stuff I saw on TV. Uh, like, like, like for instance, I remember very vividly when I was a little kid, I probably must've been about, oh, probably about four years old or so. And I was at my grandpa's house, uh, visiting and the TV was just on. And I found out years later what this was. I, I, I didn't know what it was at the time, but it was an episode of the, uh, like, I think it was the nineties Hercules TV show. Mm, okay. <laughs> and, and it was someone walking through a cave calling out for hercules like hercules where are you and some monster pops up on the screen to scare to, to scare her and that stuck with me so much as a kid that uh whenever i went to bed my turn off the lights run across the room and jump into bed because i afraid something <laughs> would like pop out from behind the bed mm-hmm. yeah you gotta throw the blankets on because you know that's like armor you can't you can't get hit if you got the blankets on oh absolutely the monsters I, I, are- I went all the way. I, there was like a good span of like a year where I slept with my head under the blankets. <laughs> <laughs> Suffocating yourself. Pretty much. <laughs> oh my gosh. Actually, a lot of the Indiana Jones movies while growing up freaked the hell out of me. Raiders of the Lost Ark. They're going yeah, through the okay. temple. Freaking like, you know, skeletons skewered on like gates and the very end when all their faces are melting because the demons yeah. out of the Ark are coming out. Yeah, you, you being five watching that yeah it'll stick with you oh yeah oh yeah there was actually one movie and this is a very strange movie to throw out there but <laughs> joe are you familiar with uh the shadow the one that uh, alec baldwin was in I, I i'm familiar of it i'm not familiar with it okay uh it is not a good movie by any standards you can totally tell it's trying to be a bad knockoff of just batman in general uh but in the opening scene there's a scene where there's this flying dagger that has a face on it and it's chasing Alec Baldwin's character in this like uh, uh, this uh, Asian temple and it's making the most horrifying face and it's like biting him. Like it has teeth and it was like attacking him and biting his leg and, you know, stabbing into his shin and flying. I was horrified at that. It sounds, it sounds like the best movie ever made. You should watch it. I mean, it's definitely one to just laugh at because of how bad it is and how offensive it is. Oh, and Ian McKellen's in it as well. Um, but I just remember that dagger scaring me and scarred me for a long time. Other movie that got me really fucked up is uh, watching Jurassic Park. I think it was really? like 12. So, yeah. That's, that, I, think, I think partly the reason like why it scared me so much is because as a little kid, I love dinosaurs, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so many little kids do, you know, I'd read, I would read like history books and like textbooks and stuff like that all about them just cause I was so interested in them. And then, so watching Jurassic park messed with my head so much. It scared the hell out of me. And it wasn't like, it wasn't necessarily like I was like jumping out of my seat, you know, cause I was so frightened, but it's just like, it just sat with me for a long time. It was just like, it just messed me up. I think a big reason why it does mess you up, especially for the first time viewing is because the, the practical effects of it just look oh. so real. Like the puppetry is kind of like, it falls in that same ballpark on why the thing by John Carpenter looks so good. 
And even why something like, you know, the early E.T. puppet just looks so good. Like there's something about practical effects in horror films that cannot really be supplemented with CGI. Like if it is yeah. with CGI, it, it better be done right. Because seeing something real and tangible there in an actual space with the actor, I think just brings that realism to life. And that's what makes it much more terrifying. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, as, as, as far as actual movies that scare me as a kid, the the one that comes to mind didn't scare me for too long. It scared me at like a certain point. And then I, I grew to love the movie and it became my favorite movie for a, a, quite a while as, as, as a kid it was The Page Master. Oh, yeah. The Jekyll and Hyde transformation. I remember yep, that. Yep. There's a whole sequence where they go into it because the whole movie's about Macaulay Culkin gets knocked unconscious in the library and goes into uh, an animated world where books are alive. And they go to different genre sections of the library. And he goes to the horror section at one point, And I think it's Leonard Nimoy, I believe, voices. It is Leonard that, Nimoy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Jekyll. And there's this whole sequence with you know going through the horror section and and mr hyde is chasing after them and that stuck me stuck with me for quite a while as a kid like a year or two later i watched the movie and it became my favorite movie for a while i absolutely love that movie the uh but another one that comes to mind that i remember very vividly frightening me was that darby o'gill and the little people really you too really okay i've heard a few different people say that, that oh yeah that movie frightened me and for most people it's the uh was it the coachman at the end of the movie for a lot of people it's always the banshee it's always a banshee that scares them like oh, right right that, that whole sequence with the banshee and the, and the coachman and all that stuff but the, the the part that got me wasn't those two sequences it was the puka scene early on and something about seeing this horse jump up and turn all these colors and people and characters freaking out about it something about that stuck with me just just imagery wise and i don't know why i i guess it's like on the same level like i guess like because you recently watched creep show and that, I did, yes. And, and that movie, all the vignettes use a lot of just very saturated and stylized colors to the point where it's like it's just strobing sometimes. And I don't know, something about color in horror has an effect on your senses. And I kind of, I can see where you're coming from with the hookah and the interchanging colored horse. But yeah, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, when we talk about Darby O'Gill and the little people, most people will say like, oh, the Banshee, you know, all that, that end sequence, which is, again, terrifying for a kid's movie. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, I never was bothered by it, but I remember my brother for the longest time was terrified of it. <laughs> Sorry to throw you out there, bro, but yeah. <laughs> I'm not surprised. It's like a grim reaper in this, you know, happy little Irish Disney movie. Yeah, that's what makes it so good. <laughs> it's a great movie. Uh, anyway, I guess that'll, that'll wrap us up for this uh, Halloween episode of the Film Illiterates podcast. Uh, Alex, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on uh, filmilliterates.com. We've got a bunch of the old episodes, old podcasts we've done. Uh, I really like the last one we did with the director Spotlight with Derek C. and France. That was actually uh, one of my favorite ones, honestly, in a while that we've done. Yeah, that was a good one. I was happy with it. Um, other than that, you can find me on Twitter at Alex D. Patton. Um, if you want to check out what I'm listening to, uh, I'm on Rate Your Music under Half Scrim. And then same thing under uh, my anime list as well. Nate? Uh, well, you can find me here at filmilliterates.com on the podcast, as well as doing videos with Joe and Alex. You can also find me on Instagram at Nathan underscore stone underscore films.com. Or no, not dot com. There's no dot com in Instagram. <laughs> 
And you can find me at, uh, at Film Illiterates on Twitter and on Letterboxd.com. You can find me at Film underscore Illiterates. And as, as always, you can find all of our videos, podcast episodes, and all that at FilmIllerates.com and YouTube.com slash Film Illiterates. Keep it spooky, keep watching movies, and keep it easy. Thank you.